Welcome to the Four Lead Podcast, a safe place for everyone. Hey, Ryan, what's going on? Uh, not too much, Sam. Glad uh, to be on. <laughs> Some technical <laughs> difficulties getting started, but we got through it. We got through it. We so, uh, um, first off, I want to say thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Sorry, uh, you cut out. I didn't catch that. No, you're all right. I said uh, I just wanted to say thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, really glad to be on. I just, uh, you know, give yourself a quick introduction and we'll get started. Sure. Uh, Ryan Madigan, I'm a clinical psychologist, um, licensed in a couple of states, uh, run a few uh, mental health practices for youth, young adults, families, uh, kind of uh, sprinkled throughout the country um, and looking forward to talking about mental health issues and, you know, getting into it. Yeah, well, so, I mean, obviously, I have no uh, professional certification, so it's really cool to have somebody on uh, because, you know, the podcast is kind of growing a little bit, and um, I did think it would be uh, really awesome to have somebody like you on the show to ask some questions um, from, you know, from my perspective and different questions I've gotten throughout. So, um, yeah, you said you've been doing this about how long? Uh, right around 15 years or so. And what got you into it, if you don't mind? I don't know. Uh, you know, I get that question a lot. I, uh, I started studying business, jumped sort of around from finance to marketing. Uh, that didn't really do it for me. Went over to engineering. Uh, that didn't float my boat. And, uh, just sort of jumped from internship to internship and kind of tripped over, an internship working with kids on the spectrum uh, and, and found sort of the, the engineering, if you will, of understanding how people work. And that sort of led me to one thing after another. Okay. And uh, so for me, like I've bounced around jobs, but you, but you ended up finding out something that you loved and, and enjoyed doing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, the, the, the business world, I found uh, the social side of it uh, was appealing to me, but the material itself didn't do it for me. The engineering side, understanding how things work, I found really fascinating, but I didn't find the the substance of it, you know, for me. And, and psychology to me is sort of like the the understanding of social beings, sort of the engineering of of of, of minds, and and that's I think what makes it so interesting uh, and, and fulfilling to me. Okay, and what what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Uh, so a psychologist uh, usually has a doctoral degree uh, in, in psychology, clinical psychology, uh, which requires somewhere in the ballpark of five to seven years uh, of school post uh, undergraduate. Okay. And a, and a psychiatrist is a, is a medical doctor by by schooling they go to medical school and then they specialize in their 
residency and fellowship in psychiatry. Um, so they're the ones who in most states are prescribing medicine. Um, and the psychologists are, are, our training is more in uh, diagnostics, uh, understanding and assessing mental health and, and treating mental health issues. Uh, without without medicine? Uh, yeah, a lot of our patients do, do take medicine, but we are not the ones who are prescribing it in most states. Okay. Uh, do you know much about nootropics? You mean the Joe Rogan stuff? Yeah, yeah. Or just <laughs> ashwagandha, stuff like that. Yeah, not prescription uh, stuff. Well, so there's, my understanding is there's kind of like three categories of medications or, or supplements that I end up getting asked about. There's the sort of psychopharmacology, you know, Prozac, things like that, that, that pharmaceutical companies manufacture and psychiatrists write scripts for. Um, there's like the, this boom of supplements and, and, and things that a lot of folks, celebrities are talking a lot about, um, you know, GNC type type things that are not FDA approved, but you can buy it like a CVS or GNC. Uh, and then there were online now is where a lot of them are purchased. Uh, and then there's like the psychedelics, which is a booming uh, topic where ketamine and psilocybin and MDMA are, are now being looked at to, to treat mental health issues. So we think of them in those three categories. Um, I'm assuming you're talking about the sort of middle category um, that yes. Joe Rogan and a lot of others talk a lot about. And the truth is, there's just not a lot of hard science on any of this stuff. Um, some people swear by it. Um, you know, it's hard to tell sometimes what is uh, marketing and, and people plugging it for financial gain and what is really changing people's lives. Um, but we don't have the hard science that we'd want to have for me, me to really be able to speak to it. So really all I can say is that, you know, you want to be cautious about what you put in your body and know that all this stuff is not FDA approved. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that doesn't mean it, it doesn't benefit some people sometimes. All right. So say I walk in and I'm like, Hey, Brian, I need some help. Right. What, what's your philosophy as for ther for therapy? Uh, I'm glad you asked that because my philosophy and, and that, that we practice in, in all our centers is a, is our patients tell us are, is pretty different philosophically and, and, and in practice than most mental health uh, centers. So standard mental health care, you identify there's something going on. You meet with a professional. Some people start with their primary care doc. Others just go right to, uh, you know, finding a therapist and there's a, you know, a, a categorical diagnostic assessment, trying to figure out which mental health disorder captures the symptoms you're 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 experiencing and then which therapy and or medication might be the best fit for that mental health disorder um we certainly are in that general uh area but if you were to walk into my office and, and we got talking i just want to sort of hear from you in the beginning kind of informally about what's going on what's working not working in your life and the framework that we we use to kind of generate a formulation of what is causing said suffering that, that brings you to us is really more emotion focused than it is behavioral focused. Uh, whereas the DSM is pretty behavior uh, heavy in, in how it sort of categorizes people. Um, mm. So when I'm listening to somebody tell me about their experiences, I'm, I'm listening for which emotions are working and doing what they're biologically supposed to be doing to help you get your needs met and which emotions have been um, 
you know, sort of thrown off by life and, and, and learning experiences that uh, end up creating a really problematic relationship with key emotions that are supposed to help you get your needs met, but are now, you know, usually being experienced as some sort of threat. Uh, and, and now we're putting a lot of energy into suppressing an emotion that's, that's actually, you know, we really need to try to give us information about our needs, if that makes sense. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me personally, like I, I would mask everything with like anger, you know, if that makes sense. Yep. To you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I taught my wife the difference between primary and secondary emotions. Primary yeah. emotions are, are the ones we're, we're born with uh, that are giving us, an, you know, every emotion's got a different neurological purpose and signal. So it's telling us different things about our needs. And, but life sort of teaches us that certain primary emotions are problematic, uh, either because of stigma or because of some sort of trauma that was paired with it. And we develop secondary emotions to try to suppress those primary emotions, just like you said, Sam. Uh, and I explained this to my wife years ago, and she goes, is that why you're such an irritable jerk when you're sad? <laughs> and I said, yes, that is exactly why I'm, I'm a bit of a jerk when I'm sad, because that anger is so much, it feels more empowering, especially, you know, male stereotypical societal expectations. It's anger is seen as strength and, you know, macho and sadness is seen as a weakness and vulnerability. Uh, but if we live our life like that, then every time a, a need that's critical to our core need, it goes missing. Uh, sadness's job is to tell us, you know, what that is so that we can figure it out, replace it, fix it and get it back into our life. So if we suppress it all the time, we, we you know, our life gets emptier and emptier. So what's what's the timeline for unpacking stuff like that when you've spent so long, you know, and responding with a different one how, how, but you know you have a problem and you want to address and you want to get better but you still kind of default to those settings yeah. what's the timeline look like um so uh depending on what you mean by unpacking it um figuring out where the formula is if you will on what's what's the suffering which emotions you're struggling with and, and what's caused those primary emotions to be experienced as threats that that shouldn't take more than a, a consult or two, uh, meaning a, a, a one or two hour, uh, one to two, one hour uh, uh, initial consultations. Mm -hmm. um, that's the that's the about, amount of time it takes to sort of create that formulation, put a road to to explain and orient a person to what they're going to need to do to sort of change their relationship to those key emotions. Uh, so that part's very, very quick, very efficient. Um, the integrating it into your life, it really depends person to person. Um, if, a, if an individual comes in highly motivated, highly engaged, they're really, this is their number one priority in their life. They're going to start seeing changes in, in a matter of weeks and months. Um, it doesn't mean everything will be perfect in a matter of weeks or months, but, but they'll start seeing and feeling, you know, better pretty quickly. Uh, but like you said, these learning histories are embedded usually pretty early in our life and the practice makes perfect. So the more, more practice we have be, being an irritable jerk when we're sad, the, the easier it is to default back to that, that mode. And, and it's going to, and it takes time to sort of rewire those circuits, if you will. And as like a patient or uh, therapist, how do you monitor progress and like deal with hiccups? Cause like, you know, it's, 
not everything's like a, a Rocky movie when you have a training montage and then afterwards you beat Apollo Creed and you win the title. You know, life <laughs> is, 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 is not a movie. You're going to have times where you, you let your emotions get the best of you. And for me, that's that's the hardest part is like when you're doing so well and then you have a slip up and whatever. And then I, I feel terrible about it. And then, you know, before I know it, I'm consumed with thoughts that I shouldn't have, you know. And yep. how do you how do you deal with that from your perspective? Yeah. So uh, from the, you know, the individual standpoint, like you said, when you have a slip up and then you're, you're hard on yourself, um, the way I would in broad strokes measure and monitor progress <clears throat> is uh, the amount of time in between relapses, wh- whatever relapse means, uh, it doesn't have to do with substances. It could have to do with, you know, panic attacks, anything. So you want to see the amount of time in between those episodes grow longer and longer. And you want to see the episodes themselves uh, recover faster and faster. So this all or nothing, you know, you know, Apollo Creed sort of like I'm I'm, I'm all better or I'm not is a is a mindset that can make progress, you know, even harder because it can make you feel like you got to be perfect or or you're not better. So I, I try to look at progress as as being on the positive trend if uh an individual's uh you know episodes are are happening less and less and when they do happen they're recovering faster and faster from them okay i understand you know from a a clinical standpoint so yeah i was just gonna if you're in treatment if you're in treatment from from a provider standpoint from a therapy standpoint we're looking at your subjective uh, you know, observation of, of have you or are you meeting the goals that you came here to meet? Um, we're looking at standardized measures uh, of different areas of, of symptomology like PTSD, depression, etc. Um, and, and we're combining that data session to session to make sure that we're, we're treating what you came here to, to treat. So what, what I just described is called measurement-based care, and it's unfortunately, a little bit more innovative than I think it should be. It should be standard practice that where your provider is not only using an evidence-based treatment to treat whatever you are looking to work on, but you're also using standardized measures of those symptoms to inform every session. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And that's really the gold standard for what your provider should be doing to ensure that there's accountability that we're looking at how's how's your anxiety this week and and the, that data should be informing the the session that you're having um i'm glad you brought up the term anxiety because i i feel like that gets thrown around a lot and same with depression i was just wondering if you wouldn't mind defining those two things um you know f- f- from a professional standpoint yeah um you know, the, the, the DSM is going to list a set number of symptoms that you have to have X amount of over X amount of time. And I, 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 to me, a, a more effective way to think about anxiety and depression is anxiety is uh, at baseline, a healthy emotion, right? Anxiety is there to tell you uh, that there's a potential threat to, to your core needs, your safety, your independence, whatever. Um, and it's trying to give you information to help you prepare for that threat, right? It could be studying for an exam. It could be protecting yourself from somebody who's toxic. Um, so that level of anxiety is normal, right? That, that everybody has that, uh, it, it keeps us alive. When that anxiety becomes a secondary emotion where basically it's 
it's a sort of functioning on overdrive, right? You think of somebody who has fought in, in combat <clears throat> when they're in a, a war zone, hypervigilance is a form of anxiety. That's not a symptom in a war zone. That's a survival tool, right? That, that's what gets you home. If that hypervigilance continues after you're, you're back home and, and you're safe and, and you're still in this state of hypervigilance, you know, then, then it's starting to go from something that saved your life to something that's taking over your life. So that's, that's the way I would think about, uh, you know, anxiety. Is it helping me get my needs met or is it now interfering in me, you know, enjoying my life? So if you've got a, a level of anxiety that's, that's now crossed the line to interfering, then that'd be something that, that you'd want to, you'd want to potentially work on. Depression <clears throat> is uh, often associated with sadness and they're completely separate neurological signals. So uh, sadness is there to tell you when a need is missing, so you can get it back, you know, grieving, crying, uh, you know, processing uh, a loss is sadness's job. Um, depression is actually, there's some really cool animal studies that, that show that depression is not this disease state that we, we think it is. Depression is actually your brain protecting itself almost from itself, if you will. So think about my example with my wife where I, you know, I get irritable when I'm sad. Yeah. Um, what I do when I'm irritable, when I'm snapping at people, I'm short, I'm a jerk, right? It, it creates the illusion I fixed the problem in the short run because I'm no longer dealing with that vulnerable sadness. But the thing my sadness was trying to tell me I need to replace, right? It never gets replaced. So eventually my brain goes, look, Ryan, what you're doing is not working, right? Mm -hmm. It's a whole, it's a hopeless way of getting your needs met. And that, that state of depression is actually protective. It's my brain trying to get me to stop using my energy for something that's hopeless. And it's trying to get me to sort of refocus on the primary issue uh, at hand that, that needs to be dealt with. So it's almost like your brain puts you, you in timeout. It takes away your motivation, your energy, so that you're, you're no longer sort of have that that will to engage in that thing that's not working. And, and it's your brain trying to get you to rethink, uh, you know, whatever the problem is and, and get you refocused on what your actual needs are. So, so depression, it's, it's, it's a healthy thing in that it's trying to get you back on track. Um, uh -huh. But, but I don't mean it's something that you're supposed to just live with all the time. If you listen to your depression, it'll go away because it's done its job. If you don't listen to your depression, it, it will, it will continue. So if you if you're suffering from depression and you like fear listening to it, that that can lead to, you know, substance abuse and stuff like that. Yeah. So substance use, eating disorders, uh, secondary anxiety, uh, anger, shame, all, all these things are coping strategies for, for trying to live with primary emotions that we, we perceive as a threat. Right. I'm afraid if I let that emotion back in. I'm going to feel as out of control as I did when, when that initial trauma happened. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so substance abuse is just an attempt to regain a sense of control when you're otherwise feeling completely out of control. So when I say, listen to the, the depression, I don't mean listen to the thoughts you have when you're depressed because okay. often, often those thoughts are, are, you know, pretty dark. They can be, you know, like suicidal thoughts or, or thoughts about using substances. I mean, listening to the function of depression. When you're in a state of depression, it's your brain telling you that something you're doing is a hopeless way of getting your needs met. So if every time you're struggling with sadness, you, you use drugs, for example, then the depression is trying to basically tell you that the drugs are a hopeless way of getting your needs met. 
and it's trying to take away your energy to, to, so you stop using them and, and you turn your mind to a, a more effective solution, which is whatever that emotion is trying to, that primary emotion of sadness is trying to tell you. So if you, if you are depressed and, and you're using substances or, or other toxic coping mechanisms, how do you get away from that train of thought and move into more a positive way of dealing with it? Yep. So when I think of this, so think of it as sort of having three layers. The, the substance use to me is usually like the third layer okay. uh, of, of trying to get away from that depression. Uh, and the depression is your brain trying to tell you that something else you're doing, avoidance, uh, be, you know, uh, getting angry uh, instead of really trying to process what you're sad about. Um, so if you think of those three layers, right, the substance use is, is, is a behavior you're engaging in to try to other emotions the depression is trying to tell you something else is not missing usually it's another emotion we're not listening to and if i were you know working with a client i'd i'd, I'd want to get get into the well what is the emotion that you're you're working so hard to get away from let's figure that out first sadness is probably the most common but for a lot of people uh anger can be wrapped up in their anxiety um and then we'd want to sort of really understand, like, how did you come to suppress and work? So, how did you come to basically experience this emotion as such a threat? Right. We'd want to understand, like, how that conditioning, how that learning uh, occurred. Right. So does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. And then we'd want to begin the process of unpairing that primary emotion from the experience of helplessness. Okay. which is really what, what trauma is. Trauma is a, a pairing of a, a healthy or neutral thing like sadness uh-huh. with a very unhealthy thing like, like helplessness, being, being trapped in, in, in a situation where you're totally out of control over core needs. Uh, and when they co-occur and your brain now recognizes them as basically the same thing, you're now working overtime not only to avoid ever losing control again, which of course, you know, we don't want to ever be in a state of of helplessness when it comes to our core needs, but now we're also working just as hard to avoid the co-occurring, you know, experiences that were paired with it, right? Like a classic example is like folks who are hypervigilant, have PTSD from combat and they, they, they sort of get triggered by fireworks, right? The firework itself is not a threat, but that, that recalling of the sound uh, is, is sort of paired, if you will, with the experience of helplessness which is what causes all the symptoms of PTSD and all the attempts to regain control. So we want to unpair those, those, those experiences uh, through, through exposure therapy, basically. And exposure therapy is just pretty much addressing the problem that you're afraid to address. So you have a, a bad response to it. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of different sort of cat categories of exposure, um, but they're, they all, what they all share in common is that, their activities or, or forms of discussion that bring back up some sort of experience that is associated with helplessness. Uh, and, and that way you can sort of re-experience it and then reprocess it in a way that allows you to recognize the difference between when you were actually trapped and helpless, like a mm-hmm. person might, might be in a war zone versus uh, you know, 4th of July, you're listening to fireworks. And while you feel like that's happening again, because those two experiences are paired, 
finding ways to sort of ground yourself in the reality that you're at, you know, you're at home, you're with your family, you know, wherever you are and, and, and recognize the difference between basically traumatic sadness versus uh, a healthy sadness or, uh, you know, traumatic experiences like in war versus healthy or, or, or benign experiences like 4th of July celebrations. Understood. Um, what about, like obviously the the podcast is called for lee right my my mom and brother mm-hmm. both passed away with something like as as certain as like death right like you know mm-hmm. that's a little bit different than um you know other events how do you deal with patients who are just devastated over oh, devastated excuse me over loss mm-hmm. and you know because there's there's no conversation i'm gonna have with lee again right like that's just something i've accepted but it still doesn't mean it doesn't suck um yeah. and so how do you deal with with patients with that sort of thing going on? Yeah. So um, it's a great question. And what it sounds like, you know, is, is a combination of grief and what we call traumatic grief. So like I said before, sadness is trying to help you recognize what's missing so you can replace what's missing. And sometimes that's really straightforward and clear. Like I lost my job. I got to get another one. Yeah. Uh, my, my girlfriend broke up with me. I, I'm going to find an, another partner. I'm going to download well, Tinder. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, but the, when you lose a, a mother or a brother and, and that relationship is irreplaceable, you know, you, you can't, you can't get another brother or mother. Uh, then it's, it's a little bit more of a, of a personal answer, right? How do you, how do you replace who that person was in your life? And I don't mean with like a, another person necessarily, although it could be, Sometimes it's, you know, just trying to really honor and, and reflect on who they were to you and what they brought into your life. And, and now that they're gone, what's now missing? And, and how do you find ways to go on and reconnect with those things that, that, are, that are missing so that you can kind of live on with them within you, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the, one of the reasons I was so excited to be on this podcast with you is, you know, in the title, it's for Lee. I think you doing this podcast is a form of really healthy, you know, grieving and finding meaning. And, 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 you know, these are the the exact kind of things that I would encourage a person to do. Who's, who's working through such a, such a traumatic loss, such a, such a, you know, intense thing to grieve, like the loss of a brother and, and mother. Um, so, you know, sometimes replacing, what's missing is something that you're doing within yourself. And sometimes what's what's replacing what's missing is, is finding these, these really valuable things that you loved about those relationships and in other relationships. And often the more important the person, the more people it takes to sort of replace what's missing. If that makes any sense. No, it makes, I mean, for me personally, you know, I constantly see, uh, idle hands is the devil's work or something like that. that's what they say but yeah uh, yeah if the the less the, the more time i have by myself the 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 less successful i am in my progress i guess if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> i mean I, i'm obviously not your provider so i'm not in a position to to, to know what, what what's going to work or not work for you personally or really anybody who, who i'm not working with yeah but you know, staying busy is something that I would say is in the category of like a really healthy avoidance behavior, right? So there's unhealthy avoidance and there's healthy avoidance. So if I was working with a client who was really busy, you know, like to stay busy 
and that helped them sort of maintain a sense of control over those primary emotions, that, that sadness, that, that vulnerability, I'd say that's a really healthy way to avoid uh, a primary emotion. <laughs> much better, much better than substance use, right? Much better than, than other, other forms of avoidance. I'd also be remiss if I didn't say, you know, I'd really want you to be, be living the most fulfilled, meaningful life possible. So I'd also want to help you find ways to, to not need to be so busy all the time so that you could work through some of that grief and, and, you know, do, do what you've already begun doing through this podcast and find ways to, to further sort of do what that emotion sadness is trying to tell you to do, which is replace with missing, replace what your mother and brother brought into your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've been in therapy before um, and I, I enjoyed it. I learned, learned a lot of stuff about myself and things like that. Just sometimes if I'm being transparent, it, it got to be too much to talk about stuff. And then I just kind of stopped going. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I have friends and stuff who encourage me to go back and it's something I'm considering. But, but um, yeah, yeah I, mean, I, to, I appreciate I sure. that, like, because if you look at it objectively, yeah, it's probably not a good idea to just always be busy so you don't feel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, but but like I said, that's how most of us are living our lives. So it's not like. You know, I, I couldn't sit here and go, I, you can't leave my office. I don't I don't feel like this is, you know, this is not OK. This is how most people are, are living. <clears throat> um, so but, you know, what, one thing I'm, I'm glad you mentioned is that, you know, you've been in therapy, you've, you've tried talking about it and, and it got to be too much. So you stopped going to me. That re- represents two problems that are are, are our fault as providers. Uh, the first is the mental health field is, uh, if I'm being polite, is inconsistent, right? There is very little consistency among providers in terms of what they're doing and and how well they're doing it. So when the general public, you know, flips over their insurance card or or turns to whoever for a therapy recommendation, you really don't know what you're going to get. So I would encourage people who are looking into therapy to, to think of it less as a one and done and more of a like, I'm, I'm going to have to go shopping. You know, it's like, it's like looking for that dream car, yeah. right? Like my first car was definitely, I think it was a minivan. <laughs> definitely <laughs> not my, my dream car. It took me 12 cars to get to my dream car. So that's one way I'd look at it. Um, one of the things we do in our clinic is I do uh, a lot of the initial consults so that I can pair a person up with the right fit so that there's a greater likelihood that you're going to be in that, that good match straight away. But a lot of clinics don't do that. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing, too, is that when a person, if, if we just started talking about something that was really uh, paired with a traumatic experience and that emotion, that primary sadness for me that makes me irritable started to come up. The, what a lot of therapists don't realize is that you have to treat the, the helplessness first and then get to the sadness. Because I'm experiencing both simultaneously. If when I feel sad, I also feel helpless. And the therapist just keeps asking me about the sad stuff, right? That's just going to make me also feel more helpless and out of control. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that a lot of therapists don't recognize. And then, you know, people feel overwhelmed and they feel like the therapist isn't listening. And then they quit and they say, you know, this isn't working. So what's really important is you got to treat the helplessness, meaning... We, we, we have to do something when you start to feel that way 
that reminds you, that proves to you that you're not trapped back in wherever emotion was first introduced in that helpless context. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and like I can I can identify like if I get if I get upset, like I could <clears throat> like a child. If that makes sense. And like I feel like a caged mm-hmm. animal. Like we go, like I'm like backed in a corner, and I know maybe the person or persons aren't trying to offend me or hurt me, but it's just like in my mind it gets warped, and I'm just like, no, they're coming after me. I got to get defensive, and I hate that feeling very much. But um, that's definitely that's, that's it. That's the feeling you just put words to perfectly. That's that's the 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 healthy emotion, sadness. That's also coming up with the unhealthy experience of of helplessness. That's going to make a person feel really trapped and out of control. Um, and just going back to what you said, um, you said that you do the initial consultations and stuff like that. Let's mm-hmm. say somebody's shopping for a therapist, right? What are, what are some things that they should look for um, that, that'll that kind of streamline the process and make them a little more successful in finding what they need or, or looking for? Yeah. Uh, you know, technically the interpersonal fit, the, the likability, trustability, right? On paper shouldn't matter that much, right? I don't need to really like my dentist for my dentist to be able to take care of my teeth. But in actuality, when I'm opening up and talking about vulnerable things, if I don't like or trust this person, you know, opening up your emotions is a lot more challenging than just like opening your mouth to the dentist and letting them do their thing. So I do think the, the, the fit, the interpersonal fit, it, while it's not the end all be all in terms of making actual progress, it's usually a necessity in the beginning to just even feel like you can talk to this person. So somebody who you feel like you could relate to, uh, who, who can talk to you like a normal person, right? When I, when I interview therapists and they have that therapy voice where they suddenly start talking differently because they're talking to a client and, and they're talking differently than they would to, you know, their, their friends or siblings, I, I don't hire those people. Uh, you know, so somebody who's just normal, who can have a conversation, who's direct uh, is, is what I would typically look for. Um, and obviously, well, it's obvious to me, but not obvious to, to everybody in the, in the general public, but we re- really want to make sure that they're, they're using evidence-based treatments, that they're intensively trained in, in robust, you know, cognitive behavioral, or if you can find it even more important, dialectical behavior, be even more effective than cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and lastly, I think the person uh, who's sitting with the therapist know, will they know themselves better than anybody so if you're meeting with the therapist and they're giving you feedback and sharing their formulation and it and it resonates and it's like oh man that 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 tracks then that 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 means you're with probably a, a good fit <clears throat> whereas if they're talking to you like they're up on a pedestal or, or they're sharing things that just don't make any sense to you it's not tracking it, it, it just doesn't you know, resonate, then I'd, I'd say that person just doesn't get it and you, you'd be better, you know, suited to move on and find someone else. Is there uh, statistics on how long it takes someone to find the right fit for a therapist? Like, is it one in five or? That's a great question. I have no idea what the answer to that question is. I'm going to look that up right after next, we, next we time get you're on this the call. podcast. We'll, we'll get, we'll find that answer. Uh, I can tell you, I can tell you at my, at the Boston Child Study Centers uh, that I own and operate, 
the average uh, client who comes to us has seen 11 therapists before they, they, they find us. Um, 11, I think 11 therapists. Yeah. 11 therapists or programs, you know, hospitals, programs. Uh, I don't think the number wow. has to be that high. We, we tend to be the end of the line. We see the, the, the most complex and most uh, acute uh, clients. So I'm going to guess the number is probably closer to half that probably six would be my, you know, subjective guess, but I, I'm going to look that up uh, right after. So, we so if, if people are listening and they've gone to like three therapists that isn't working out, they still got a couple more to, before they find the one. Uh, yeah, I'd say keep, you know, this is your happiness. This is your yeah. well-being. So while it's not convenient and while our field is not where I would like to see it, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything other than your physical health. What's more important than your mental health? You know, do you want to just get by or do you want to thrive? So I'd say keep looking until you find the right person, um, you know, because what's more important than that? Well, so you just touched on something I did want to get into, which is the benefits of physical exercise and mm-hmm. or, and mental health related. Because after I go to the gym, I do feel much better if I do jujitsu stuff like or go for a run. Runner's mm-hmm. high. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. Um, Am I am I on to something there, or is that, is that <clears throat> definitely? Real? It's definitely real. Um, it, I would say physical uh, activity. Yeah, I was on to something. You're definitely on to something. I, I think you're, I think physical activity is necessary, but probably not okay. sufficient. Meaning, if you are physically unhealthy, you're eating garbage. You're you're not exercising. You're you're not active. You're not engaging in things that you find you know meaningful, like jujitsu or other other forms of physical activity, um, then, then your foundation is, is, is going to be really weak that you're building all of the other mental health, uh, you know, efforts and strategies on top of. So, uh, you know, and there's tons of studies and, and research to, to really show the, the value and benefit of, of physical activity, you know, cardiovascular health. Uh, so you're definitely onto something. Um, and I'd say the, the healthiest people, are those who are physically active and those who are working on, you know, really at the end of the day, emotions are signals. They're not symptoms. And, and if you're working on understanding how to listen to what those primary emotions are trying to tell you, so you can get those needs met and you're physically active that to me, that person's going to be thriving 10 times out of 10. All right. Uh, do you have any tattoos? No. All right. Well, the reason I ask is because I have some tattoos and if I ever go to an artist, I always ask if they tattoo themselves. Right. Because mm-hmm. then, you know, they trust themselves to tattoo their own body. They'll, they can do, you know, work for me. But have you ever been to therapy yourself? Yes. It's a great question. Uh, so I've been in therapy when I was a when I was a kid. Uh, parents got divorced and we went to therapy and uh, I would say it was one of those examples of a, of an unhelpful, uh, therapy, uh, and kind of left me feeling like, well, if that's what therapy is, then I don't want any part of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and then in graduate school, you know, we're encouraged to, to pursue therapy in the modalities that we're learning. So I saw a psycho, uh, got to see what that was like to be on the other side of the couch. I, I saw a cognitive behavioral therapist, uh, and got to see what that was like and, and found, you know, for the most part, it, it helped me develop insights. It helped me uh, make changes that I wanted to make uh, changes to. Uh, and it also helped me learn, you know, what I want to 
you know, do on my, on, on this side of the couch as a provider uh, in terms of what, what I found worked or didn't work. So what, what's the layout of when you, when you meet with a patient, what's the layout? You got like a chair set up a couch or. Uh, for the most part, uh, it's just like, you know, somebody sitting on a chair or couch and, and I'm sitting sort of near them. Uh, we don't do the lay down on the couch and the, the analyst sits behind you while you just free associate. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. old school stuff. Um, but it's pretty informal. We do a ton of telehealth. Um, we, we did a lot of it before the pandemic. We do even more now. So a lot of it's on a, on a computer. Okay. Do you think that that, that um, it's like Zoom type stuff, is that is that as equally beneficial to meet in person? Uh, it, the, the short answer is it varies person to person. So if, if there's something about meeting on a computer that prevents you from being as open as you would be in person, yeah. then obviously in person is going to be uh, probably more more you know more beneficial uh, where but on the flip side I, i've met with a lot of people who are significantly more open in the comfort of their own home you know and and i'm just a face on a screen rather than this provider and they're in my office and you know there's sometimes an intensity to that that can be uh, overwhelming so i think the answer is it depends on the person it, but if you're just as open in both settings there's no difference in the effectiveness and the research so really no difference whatsoever in, in outcomes the only exception is when we're working with little kids you know under the age of 10 is pretty tough to do through zoom yeah um, i can only imagine so what what are the options for people who maybe they want to get therapy right but they, they just don't have it in the budget yeah well uh this is one of the major issues i have with the mental health field um so in theory, your health insurance uh, is, is what you should be able to use to find a therapist. Um, there's generally a copay uh, associated with, uh, you know, just very similar to going to see a primary care, you know, physician. Um, if you don't have insurance or you've tried providers who take your insurance and it hasn't worked out, uh, generally the, the more uh, intensively trained or, or most highly reputable uh, therapists don't take insurance uh, because insurance is just the reimbursement rates for mental health providers is in the in the dark, dark ages basically. Um, and so what we do, I, I can speak to what our solution is: is we're a, we we do not take insurance. We're all of our centers are fee for service, meaning patients pay out of pocket, but they pay a fee based on uh, their income. So, for example, if you earn two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less then the fee starts to decrease all the way down to $2 a session. Wow. Um, so it's, it's, me it's meant to be uh, affordable for anybody, and we've never had to turn anybody away for financial reasons, uh, but it also keeps the managed care, uh, you know, double standards and conflicts of interest, you know, it keeps them uh, away from our, our, our treatment and so they're not meddling and in, in interfering and telling us what we can and can't do. Okay. That's pretty, $2 a session is, and that's just all based off like tax bracket and stuff like that. Yep. Yep. If you're in over 12,000 a year, uh, you got to file a tax return. So we, we would ask for that. Um, and if you're in under 12,000 and you, you don't have a tax return, we just ask for any demonstration of financial need and, and we set you up. So uh, if, if you don't mind, what, what's a typical 
therapy session like if, if, if someone's working with you? Is it an hour? Does it more time, less time, um, weekly, monthly? How often? Yeah. Uh, so most of my sessions are about 45 minutes. Uh, sometimes it'll, it'll be shorter if we've done what we've, you know, set out to do could be 30, could be 60. If we, we really need to, to add some extra time to wrap up what we're working on, but roughly I'd say on average, it's a 45 minute session. Um, <clears throat> we've got a set of goals that are usually tied to, uh, helping you, you know, uh, connect better with, uh, said primary emotion that, that you're struggling with. Um, or, uh, at, you know, sort of, uh, how, how'd your week go? Right. So there'll be some sort of self-monitoring mechanism. I use a software platform that sends you a, a link and you can track, you know, how many times did I snap at somebody I, uh, you know, I care about how many times I have urges to drink, how many times did I have uh, difficulty getting out of bed? So whatever the, whatever the, the targets are that you're trying to change, we're going to track those. Uh, you're going to track those every day. And then we're going to start by reviewing, you know, what those patterns look like. And we're going to try to figure out why the things that are working are working and, and reinforce strategies for keeping that going. And we're going to look at the things that aren't working and understand why and, and look to make a change. And I think of a therapy session as a huddle in, in football. Yeah. Okay. Right. <clears throat> the session itself does nothing, right? Just like a huddle does nothing. You can't score a touchdown in a huddle. Uh, but in a huddle, you can figure out, okay, why did that last play not work? And let's try this because of suggested about why that last one didn't work. And then we go and you implement whatever you talked about in the huddle. And the implementation is what's going to create changes in between sessions. Um, the other thing that, that helps in a, a dialectical behavior therapy format is that you'd have access to, to calling me or texting me in between sessions. So if you're running into something we talked about, you tried what we discussed in the huddle, it didn't work. I might be able to come up with something on the fly in like a quick 10 minute phone call uh, so that you can make changes much, much faster uh, and, and, and get some help, you know, as the shit is hitting the fan, so to speak. So you do more than just the, the session. You're, you're available after hours too. Yeah, we're of a dialectical part of the model for for comprehensive DBT dialectical behavior therapy is that we're available to our clients twenty four seven. So they, my clients, call me, you know, anytime, any day. Uh, obviously, if I'm asleep and I don't hear it, I call them in the morning. But basically, I'm, I'm my commitment is to get back to them within twelve to twenty four hours. It's usually like an hour or two, but sometimes life happens and and our clients know that that they, they need to wait for that that period of time but it really it really helps move progress along because you're getting help as life is really happening as opposed to you wait seven days you come in you kind of remember what happened you kind of don't yeah you know it's not it, it's just not ideal to to think that there's something magical about that one hour so you you know any way we can we can you know generalize those strategies to your real life we're gonna we're gonna do either using technology or phone coaching etc is that is industry standard? Is that just something your practice does? Um, it's industry standard for full model dialectical behavior therapy. Um, that's a part of the treatment. Um, so if people are saying they're doing DBT and they don't offer phone coaching, then they're not they're not doing DBT. Uh, there okay. might be they might be doing DBT informed supportive talk therapy or something like that. But uh, that's a gold standard uh, component of 
of dialectical behavior therapy. And how, how long does DBT usually go for? Uh, in the research, uh, it, it's a it's usually a six month to twelve month treatment. Um, p- people who are you know really really depressed, suicidal, self harming, etc., uh, are likely to attend a skills group. Uh, they're going to have an individual therapist. They're going to have phone coaching. Um, if they're under eighteen or they're still sort of interdependent on their family system, we see a lot of folks from the age of like twenty to thirty five who are still very much, you know, involved in their family systems, then we, we assign a, a therapist to work with the parents and, and provide some family therapy. Um, and, and on average, we, we would expect to see most of the goals obtained within six months to a year. Within six months. to Wow. That's impressive. Um, and that's, that's DBT. Yeah. Okay. Dialectical behavior therapy. Yeah. So I, pretty sure i've done that but it just uh wasn't kind of what you described um but what you described sounds pretty awesome yeah if you find a so dbt because it's so popular people attend a conference a one-day training and now they're they they deem themselves dbt therapy Uh, if you're interviewing a therapist and you really want to understand if they really know what they're doing from a dbt standpoint ask them if they provide 24-hour phone coaching and if not, ask them why, because they should be, and ask them um, if they attend a weekly DBT consultation team. So this is the invisible part of DBT that the consumer doesn't see. But uh, as a DBT clinician, we meet with other DBT clinicians, usually groups of like six to eight. And and that's where we both support one another, but hold each other accountable to the model. So it's kind of like group supervision for DBT therapists by DBT therapists. And if you're not really committed to DBT and you're not really fully trained, you're, you're not likely to be doing one of those two things. So those are two really quick and easy ways to, to, to determine if somebody is really a DBT therapist. If they check those two boxes uh, and it, it still doesn't feel like it's working, in my experience, what our clients have told us is that some DBT therapists are very focused on behaviors, right? We want to we want to increase skills and we want to decrease, you know, maladaptive behaviors. And it's just too focused on the outward expression of behaviors that, that, that reflect whether the, the therapy is working. And it's not really focused enough on the affect and, and making changes in terms of how you feel and what your relationship is like to primary and secondary emotions. So I'd say if you find a DBT therapist that offers phone coaching, that attends a consultation team, and they can talk to you about the difference and importance of, of understanding primary versus secondary emotions into the treatment plan. I'd be surprised if you didn't make progress uh, pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, so but there's not a lot of folks out there to your, to your point. It, it's hard to find people who check all three of those boxes. Yeah. So say you find somebody who checks those boxes and you're, but you know, obviously some people aren't as comfortable talking um, about things as other people. Like, you know, I'm, I do this podcast or whatever, so I don't have that issue talking. But uh, if if you were a little bit afraid of of getting help, right, and you're kind of a quiet, introverted person, what would you say to somebody who's coming in seeking help, but uh, maybe just doesn't know how to explain what they're going through, or maybe they're uncomfortable, they're they're worried, you know, about talking to somebody about their problems? What what type of encouragement would you give? Uh, It's a great uh, question. So, the first thing I'd say is uh, there really isn't uh, a lot of clients feel like there's like an expectation of what I want to hear from them. 
Um, so they come in with a lot of pressure and anxiety about like not knowing how to tell me what it is that they're experiencing or, or what it is I need to hear. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would, uh, I would tell that person that there really are no expectations that every therapist is going to have a, a different emphasis in terms of what they're going to ask you about. So if you're not sure exactly what to say, just, just let the kind of conversation, uh, you know, sort of do its, its job to, to get you to, to, to better understand maybe what it is that you're experiencing or looking for, um, that the, that the therapists don't have an expectation that you should already know a, B or C that they're basically trained to, to start anywhere. Um, I've, I've had clients, you know, teens come in and they, they refuse to even respond to me, right? They, they won't talk <clears throat> Hood, hoods up, headphones in. And I, I ask them, you know, Hey, what's your name? How you doing? And, and they, they don't even look up. Right. So we're, we're, we're able to start anywhere. So as long as you're able to get yourself there, uh, I'd say just start there. Um, telehealth can, I think, make it a little bit less intense, right? If you're somebody who's really anxious about opening up and talking, um, you know, maybe try a, a telehealth option. So it's a little bit less, uh, you know, intimate and, and, and that might take the edge off. Um, there's also a lot of non-human uh, options that are coming out. Uh, we're, we're launching a, a, a platform called Emotion Minds. It's not live yet, but it's meant to address a lot of what you're, you're talking about. We're, it's going to have sort of four levels of engagement. The first is going to be sort of like the Khan Academy of Emotional Health. So free uh, videos, e-learning curriculum <clears throat> that a person can just sort of explore on their own. So there's no financial barrier there's no stigma there's no shame you know there's no other person who's aware that you're engaging in this uh there'll be an ai coach uh at the second level of engagement so you're still not dealing with a human and you're just texting back and forth and then if you do want a little human support uh you, you can ask for a behavioral coach to jump into one of those ai coaching sessions and, and have sort of a telehealth session with you to get you unstuck and then the fourth and, and you know final level of engagement will be traditional telehealth therapy that's you know generally one or two times one or two times a week. And that 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 app was called what? <clears throat> it's not an app yet, uh, nor is it a, a live uh, website or platform. But that is uh, we're we're hoping to launch that within the next year, uh, and that'll oh. be called uh, Emotion Minds. Okay, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, so we got about five minutes left. Um, this was an incredible like episode. I feel, I feel like you answered all the questions that I've been getting from people who've been listening that you know I can't answer. Um, is there anything anything you, that I didn't ask you or that you wanted to talk about that I missed? No, I think we I think we covered a lot of ground. I uh, really appreciate all the all the questions that. <clears throat> and you got a couple that, that stumped me. So that's always good. I got to do some homework for next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I look forward. I look forward to getting back on that uh, percentage when I asked it, but uh, no, man, I really, I can't thank you enough for doing this and um, you know, people, people are going to listen to it and you, you did a lot of good today and hopefully, um, and we can help people who, uh, who are looking for it. Yeah. I'm uh, really excited to be on here and I really love the work you're doing, Sam. So thanks for having me and, Happy to jump on uh, again in the future. All right. You take care. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Sam. Bye. Bye.